The year was 1957, and a courtroom had just heard all of the evidence in a murder trial. Twelve men that comprised the jury retreated into a deliberation room to decide the fate of a teenage boy who had been accused of stabbing and killing his abusive father. Everyone in the room was convinced that the kid was guilty. Everyone except one guy, this guy. This is the setup to one of the most iconic movies of all time. It's called 12 Angry Men. It's an old black and white movie, and the entire movie takes place in one room, this room. And the plot of the movie is essentially this. They get into the room, and there is virtually unanimous agreement that the evidence they have just heard points inexorably to the fact that that teenage boy is guilty of murder. And this room, this jury, is ready to do a quick vote to get on with their lives and to be done with jury duty. And so they propose, hey, let's just vote. Let's get this over with. Let's move on. But juror eight slowly, quietly raises his hand and says, I don't think he's guilty. And as soon as he says it, he becomes the target of all kinds of animosity and violence and resistance and isolation because all 11 of the other jury members are convinced that the kid is guilty. And through the course of the movie, Juror 8 pleads his case. And one by one, as he proves that the evidence brought against this teenage boy is insufficient to bring a conviction, he is able to rally the other jurors to his cause. And in the climactic scene of the movie, they render a verdict of not guilty. And what you end up finding out in the movie is that the kid was actually not guilty. And so this room of men was on the verge of condemning an innocent man to an electric chair. But because one guy refused to be bullied, because he stood his ground, because he argued for what he knew was right, he saved an innocent life. And I think being a teenager and being a Christian today feels a lot like being juror number eight. When you walk into your public school, when you go to your sports team, when you hang with your friends, oftentimes it feels like you walk into the room and there is universal agreement that being a Christian is dumb. That what we believe is antiquated and old and backwards and bigoted and that you should not believe it. And heaven forbid you were to be vocal about what it is that you believe as a follower of Jesus. You would be the target of isolation and mockery and abuse and maybe even violence. The question is, what will you do when you are faced with that scenario? Because Juror 8, what he could have done is decided that because the whole room was convinced, there was no way he was going to move the ball down the field. And so he's going to say, what's the point anyways? I'm just going to get attacked. It's not worth it. And he could have just capitulated and cowered and quit. And that's what we see many Christians doing today. 
Because it is increasingly unpopular to be a Christian, less and less people are deciding that it is worth it to follow Jesus. And yet this week at Hume 2023, I want you to be able to have some courage in your heart in your heart, excuse me, to choose to follow Jesus even at great cost, even in the face of opposition, even when you will receive hostility. And that's why, as has already been so brilliantly set up, we are going to the book of Daniel because Daniel was in exile. Daniel was taken to a land that was far away from his home, that was very strange and different, a place where what he believed was hated and attacked and ostracized. And yet he was able to remain faithful to his God. And as we look at his example, we're going to learn some of the same tactics. We're going to take on to ourselves some of the same resources that Daniel had that will allow us to live as resilient followers of Jesus in a world of hostility. And I don't know about you, but I need that message. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, all right. Well, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Nick Eli, and I hail from Phoenix, Arizona. This is my family on the screen. I figured if you weren't going to listen to me, I could trick you to listening to me by showing you my cute children. And there they are. That's my wife, Rachel. And this is Titus. He's four years old. That's Jude. He's two. And that's Josiah, six months old. Look at those, look at those blue eyes. Genetically inexplicable. No blue eyes in our family and yet there he is with those shining blue eyes, incredible. Titus is four years old. We showed up to Hume Lake last night and we went to the cafeteria. It was like seven o'clock. The meal had already wound down and it was pretty much empty. And we were going up the stairs to eat like where the staff eat and Titus was going just ahead of me. And I walked up the stairs and around the corner and he's gone. And I'm thinking to myself, where did he go? And I go to take one step into the dining room. There's a little retaining wall off to the right. And he was crouching down there. And he goes, ah! And he scared the living daylights out of me. Four years old. Incredible. Incredible. He's right there in the back. And he is gloating right now. He is very, very happy to have scared his dad. He said, I got you, dad. Titus, uh, Titus is a big fan of the story of David and Goliath. We read this little Jesus storybook Bible all the time, and it describes Goliath as a, be a very big evil man with e uh, beady, greedy eyes. And then it says this. He says, he laughed his terrible laugh. That's his, ah, 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 that's his terrible laugh. So this is my family, and we'll be around all week. We'd love to say hi to you. Come and say what's up to us. Uh, like I said, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I am a lead pastor there at a church called Christ Church, which is right down the road, uh, right in smack dab in central Phoenix, right down the road from Grand Canyon University. So if you ever find yourself in that part of the town, come and say hey to us. We're at 18th Street and Camelback Road. And uh, the forecast, I'm driving back on Saturday, this coming Saturday when camp is over, the forecast for when I get home is 116 degrees. 116. So pray for me. Pray that I do not melt when I go back to my home. Okay, if you brought a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Daniel. I hope that you did bring a Bible. Um, I am thrilled to spend this time with you this week, but I need you to know, 
right at the very outset that I have nothing of eternal value to offer you. In fact, if I was just going to get up here and give you my cultural commentary and my inside opinions and my special spiritual insight, you would have almost nothing of value to learn. But I've got good news for you. I have the Spirit of God in my heart, and I have the Word of God in my hands. And so we have every reason to believe that the God of the universe will show up in this room and will speak to us in an eternally transformative way through his word. That's what he does. The word of God is powerful. It is living. It is active. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It goes where nothing else can go. It does what nothing else can do. Ephesians chapter 6 says it is the sword of the spirit. Isaiah 40 says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The, the Bible says about itself that, moreover, that these, these words are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The Bible says about itself in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. James chapter 1 says that if you receive with meekness the implanted word, it is able to save your souls. And so we have every reason for optimism and for confidence when we open our Bibles and open our ears and our hearts to receive the word of the living God. And that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to get into the book of Daniel, and we're going to see what he has for us there. So let's begin. I think we've already gotten some really incredible, helpful context but I want to give you just a little historical picture of where we are in the world and what's going on at the very outset of the book of Daniel. It's already been explained a little bit by Mikey. It's been shown to you in narrative form in the film that you just watched. But here's what's going on. I'll put a little map up here to help us. The time period is 605 B.C. So this is 600 years before Jesus lived, which is 2,600 years ago. And the people of Israel, you'll, you, if you remember the broad contours, the people of Israel are the covenant people of God who have been chosen by him. And you'll remember Abraham was called by God and he went into the land and he multiplied to become as many as the sand and the sea. And then he was taken into, all of Israel was taken into captivity in Egypt. And then God raised up Moses and liberated the people and brought them back to the promised land. And then they settled in the promised land and they raised up a king and they built a temple, but their story was one of perpetual rebellion against God. And so what we're going to find out in just a minute is that it is actually their rebellion against God that leads to what we're about to describe. Because what happens in the very beginning of the book of Daniel is the nation of Israel gets dominated and gets overtaken by this massive empire, the empire of Babylon. And so this is, this is what happens. Babylon, it's actually called the Neo-Babylonian Empire in history. They were on the rise. And they were facing some of the other massive powers in the Middle East. So think Assyria and Egypt. These world powers are vying for dominance in the Middle East 2,600 years ago. And right before the events of the book of Daniel, the empire of Babylon had a massive victory against Egypt, and they established their dominance in this region of the world. So you can see all of that yellow is where the Babylonian Empire held sway. And you can see that it basically engulfed that tiny little orange dot 
It's called Judah. Part of Israel's story was that the kingdom had already been divided. You remember, there was King David, there was King Solomon, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, split the kingdom into Israel and into Judah. Judah was much smaller. It was only two tribes. The northern tribe was Israel. That was 10 tribes. And about 150 years before the events of this, the the tribes of Israel in the north had already been carried off into captivity in Assyria, and only little Judah was left in the south in the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, Babylon has this massive defeat against Egypt, asserts their dominance in the region, and so they start moving in, and they start overtaking the little people groups and little nation states that are in this area of the world, and Jerusalem and the tribes of Judah were no exception. Babylon moves in, and under the leadership of a ruler named Nebuchadnezzar, he's actually known to history as Nebuchadnezzar II, He moves into Palestine, this area of the world, and he starts bullying these nations into submission, making them unwilling servants of the Babylonian Empire. And the way that they would do this is they would come into a place and they would bring their military might against it. They would push them into subjection and then they would take some of their people, the best and the brightest, the cream of the crop, and they would kidnap them and they would take them back to their own empire so that they could re-educate them and the Babylonian empire would then spread as they raised up essentially new converts from within the Babylonians. And that's what's happening here. That's what's going on at this time. Babylon, make no mistake, was radically different than the nation of Israel. It was a radically different religion and system of worship. They worshiped pagan gods. They had different food. They spoke a different language. They wore different clothing. They had a different social structure. And so what happens at the very beginning of the book of Daniel is we have this event narrated where the Babylonians come in and they, they siege the city of Jerusalem and they take some of the people back to Babylon with them. One of those people is Daniel. And Daniel recorded the events of this time. And what the events are going to show us is that it is possible to live with resilience in a world of hostility. And so I want to just read this for you. We're going to focus on just the first two verses of the book of Daniel. They'll be on the screen for you if you don't have them in front of you. If you do, look down at your Bibles. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, here's what I want to do. As we get started, we need to lay a little bit of a foundation to understand what exile is. And so I want to give you three ways that you can understand exile. Here's the first one. we got to understand exile for the rest of this week. First, exile results from rebellion. Exile results from rebellion. What, what you need to know is that the nation of Israel had this repeated pattern in their lives of 
following God for a little while, receiving his commands and obeying him, but then eventually drifting off into sin, drifting off into error, drifting off into rebellion. And then as God promised them he would, God warns them and pleads with them through the prophets. And he says, if you don't come back, if you don't obey the covenant, if you don't do what you are told, then there will be judgment that will befall you. And this is the, this is the cycle, is they They live in rebellion, they're warned, they experience judgment, and then because they experience judgment, they repent, and they go back to following God, and then they get back to the beginning of the cycle, and this happens over and over and over again. If you've read your Old Testament, you know this is what the people of God do. And what we find ourselves in here, in this Babylonian exile, is one of the most dramatic and devastating expressions of judgment that came from God to his people. And he warned them that it would happen. This was not like a shock or a surprise. This did not come out of left field. They were not unaware that this was on the horizon for them. In fact, through the mouth of the prophets, God had been pleading with his people, stop living in rebellion. Stop running away from me. Come back to me so that I don't have to execute judgment on you. Look at Jeremiah 25. It's on the screen. Verse 3 says, for 23 years... From the 30th year of Josiah, the king of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, for 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me. This is Jeremiah. And I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. That right there is the statement of rebellion. I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. And then verse 8 is the consequence that we see in the book of Daniel. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the people of Israel, who says that there is blessing for obedience and there is judgment for disobedience. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. That's hard to read, but it's why exile exists. Because sin exists. We're going to talk more about that later in the week. But these people, God's chosen people, turned their backs on God. They dishonored God. They broke God's law. And so God brought the promised judgment against them. And they were removed from the land that they had been promised. And this is why this is such a devastating judgment. And this is why exile is so heavy. I know it might feel a little bit historically abstract to you to hear about and to think about exile, but if you're following the flow of the Old Testament, God is always promising that I will bring you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and you will be able to sit under the shade of your own tree, and no one will make you afraid. This is the promise of the Old Covenant. Over and over again, I'm going to bring you to the land, and I'm going to bless you, and you'll be bountiful, and you'll be safe, and I will provide for you. That's what God was saying. And this is why the exile is so devastating, because through the people's own disobedience, they lost the blessing of the land that God had promised them. 
Because of their rebellion against God, they experienced the consequences, and they were ripped out of their homeland. They were ripped away from their families and everything that was comfortable and good and away from the place of God's blessing, and they were sent to a foreign land. This is what exile does. Exile results from rebellion. Now, you might be thinking at this point, surely this is a big accident. Surely something has gone wrong like things have gotten out of control and God forgot to pay attention. He accidentally left his hand off the, spe- the steering wheel and he's got to come now and fix this big problem. And that, I understand why you might think that, but there's a few words in this passage that will preclude us from reaching that conclusion and it takes us to the second thing we need to understand about exile. It is divinely directed. Exile is divinely directed. Look at these words right at the beginning of verse 2. And the Lord gave. When you, when you first read this paragraph, you might think, well, Nebuchadnezzar's obviously in control. The, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire is the real power player here, and he's coming into God's people, and he's going to dominate them and subjugate them and make them conform to his will. And yet, what the Bible reveals to us is that Nebuchadnezzar is not the top dog in this situation. He is subservient to God's purposes. The, the text says, and the Lord gave. This is a wake-up call to the complacent people of God. Do you remember Jeremiah 25? He said, I will send for all of the nations. That means he will summon the nations. So there's this massive Babylonian empire, and God is saying, like an obedient dog, he's going to say, hey, come, come, come on. My people have been complacent. My people have been rebellious, and they need to be reminded. They need to experience the consequences of their own rebellion and sin, and he summons the Babylonian empire to do his will. The, the Bible says in Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart, this is like a ruler like Nebuchadnezzar who reigns over hundreds of thousands of people and untold resources, He says that the the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This is how sovereign and authoritative and powerful God is. Like if you go out to the lake later and you pick up a little cup full of water and you decide to let it run through your fingertips or you decide to slosh it around or throw it up in the air, that's how God controls the will and the heart and the desires of the rulers of the earth. That's how powerful he is. And so he is divinely directing and overseeing and superintending even the pain and the judgment of this exile. And he's doing it for his good purposes. It's going to be hard, and at times it will be confusing, and perhaps it is for you. But God is in charge, and God's people take great comfort in that. Last Third, the way to understand hostility is this. Exile, not only does it result from rebellion, not only is it divinely directed, but third, it means hostility. Exile means hostility, but it means hostility with opportunity. Verse 2 says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and then this little phrase here, with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, those vessels of the house of God is most likely like some some pots and some cups and some utensils that were used in temple worship. 
you remember, God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping ruler of heaven and earth, made it his mission to be present with his people. And he always has been working in that regard. And one of the most transcendent and awe-inspiring ways that God was present with his people is that he allowed them to build a temple on the mount in Jerusalem. And then he filled that temple with the glory of his manifest presence. And he was there with his people so that they could worship before him and they could offer sacrifices to make good on their sin and to atone for their rebellion with the blood of sacrificial animals. But God was there with his people. And he had given them, given them very specific instructions for how to worship him, which included a bunch of tools and a bunch of utensils. And one of the ways that this Babylonian empire decides to show their dominance over the nation of Israel is they grab a whole bunch of tools from the temple and they take them back to the temple of their own pagan false god. Do you see it there? He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, what's being very clearly set up in those verses is that despite the fact that what we're going to see is human actors going back and forth, we're going to see Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to see uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to see Darius. We're going to see a whole bunch of earthly figures going at it. But what we're, what we're being told in this verse is that what's going on behind the scenes is that this is a battle of the gods. Have you guys ever played that little game? You have the two little thumb joysticks, and the red and blue boxers, and the robot. It's called, is that called Rock'em Sock'em Robots? Is that what that's called? That's how I remembered it. Rock'em Sock'em Robots, right? It's the little red guy and the blue guy, and they're like, do, 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 and they're punching each other, and then whoever's head pops off loses. You know the game I'm talking about? It's an awesome game, right? You have it at home. It's too bad you don't have it at camp. <laughs> next time, next time. How epic would it be if someone was like, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, and just pulled it out right now? That'd be incredible. So that game, right, you're, you're playing the game, and you're, you're pressing down your thumb things, and you're punching your opponent, and you, you would be wrong to think, if you observed that game, that the little red guy and the little blue guy are the true combatants, right? They're the one throwing punches, but the people actually fighting are the ones on the joysticks, are the ones pressing the buttons, and the battle that's happening there is just a proxy for the greater battle that's happening behind the scenes, and in these first few verses, what, what happens is it says the king of Babylon, the ruler of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes and he steals God's stuff. He steals the tools from his temple and he takes them back to his own temple. And what he's saying is the gods of Babylon are superior to the God of Israel. He is showing that he's in charge now and that his God is going to dominate and destroy the God of Israel. And yet what we're going to see is despite the fact that this looks like an early victory for the pagan gods, the fighting is just getting started. And God over and over and over again is going to use his supernatural power to destroy and to shame and to win victory over these Babylonian gods. And he's gonna do it through providing for his meager, exiled people. 
Exile means hostility, but it also means an opportunity, right? This is, this is the nation of Babylon coming against everything that God stands for and all of his people. And yet it is an opportunity for his power to shine brightly. Now, I just want to finish here. It'd be good to ask, why was the book of Daniel written? And here's why it was written. Because by the time Daniel wrote the book, there were still people in exile. The people of God were still away from their homeland. And the prophet Daniel wanted them to know that it was possible for them to be faithful. And he wanted them to be confident that God was in charge. He wrote the book to encourage exiles. And I just want to finish by telling you this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are an exile. As followers of Jesus, we are exiles. We are not where we are supposed to be. We're separated from our homeland. And so around us, because of our rebellion and sin, because of the brokenness of the world, we are no longer where we're supposed to be. And we're in a place that wants to hate us and twist us and shame us and pressure us and move us away from the things that we believe. And we are the people who, like Daniel, have to plant our feet in the ground, place our confidence in God, and trust that he is overseeing this whole thing and that we can be faithful to him. Now, I want you to imagine for a second. Imagine someone trying to go to the Grand Canyon. They want to go visit the Grand Canyon. So they're driving up the road in my home state of Arizona, and they see a massive road sign that says, uh, welcome to the Grand Canyon. And what they do is they, they pull their car over. They, they jump out of the car. They sit down in front of the sign they, they pull out their phone. They start taking selfies and posting them on sh- social media. They lay out their blanket. They eat a picnic. They call up National Geographic, and they're like, you will not believe what I'm seeing right now. This is amazing. And they're camping out at, at the sign. If someone loved them, they would drive by, and they would roll down their windows, and they would say, this is not where you're trying to go. If you just keep driving, you will actually get to the destination that you are seeking. And I think one of the massive reasons that Christians today are failing in their opportunity to live brightly shining, loudly testifying lives as exiles, faithful lives like Daniel, is because we are convinced that this is our destination. We're convinced that where we are now is the best it's ever going to get. And so we better grab all the pleasure and all the relationships and all the things and all the material stuff that we can get in this life because there's nothing better coming down the road. And the book of Daniel and the whole story of the Bible is like shouting to us, this is not your destination. This isn't where you belong. You are headed somewhere better than this if you are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, your true home is in heaven. And this is, the, this is where I want to end on this encouragement. Because being in exile is hard. Being, feeling like mocked and attacked and isolated and alone, it's hard. And yet when you're in exile, exile means, right? It means you're not where you're supposed to be. But here's the encouragement. In order to be exiled, it means there has to be a place where you belong. And that place is heaven for you and for me. And so if we will embrace 
a heavenly vision that will allow us to live this life in light of the next, not only will it give us more joy right now and more safety and more security and more peace and more purpose right now, it will also give us eternal joy in heaven where we will have both belonging and blessing. Those will go up on the screen right now and then we'll be done. In heaven, we have belonging and we have blessing. Heaven is the place that we belong. Philippians 3 says that our citizenship is there. That's where we belong. John chapter 14 says that Jesus is going there to prepare a place for us where we will be with him forever. And not only do we have belonging there, but we have blessing there. Peter opened his epistle by saying this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I know sometimes it feels impossible to live faithfully as an exile. But the book of Daniel is going to show us that it is possible. And my hope and my prayer is that as we look to Daniel, who lived in an exile that is far more severe and dangerous than the one we lived in, that we will be filled with courage and hope that we can do it too. Because here's the thing about Daniel. Daniel's not a superhero. Daniel's not different than you. Daniel's not better than you. Daniel doesn't have natural resources that you don't have. You worship the same God that Daniel worshiped. You have the same resources that Daniel had. And so you can live resiliently in a world of hostility. And by so doing, you can glorify God as you head towards your heavenly home And you can make an eternal difference, not just in your life, but in the lives of all those around you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. What a gift it is to be in your presence, to know the fellowship of your spirit, to have the gift of your word open in front of us. God, I pray that we would take seriously the responsibility and opportunity to live faithfully to you, even in the face of opposition. God, thank you that your word is honest about the fact that we will face opposition. Thank you that you didn't bait and switch us. You've told us it will be difficult, but you've also told us it will be worth it. So help us to believe that there is more joy and pleasure in your presence than there is in anything that the world has to offer us. Help us to believe that at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Help us to long for and to cling to the hope that one day when we stand in your presence, you will wipe away every tear from our eye. You will judge the living and the dead. You will vanquish evil, and we will be with you in our heavenly home for all eternity. God, help us to live this day, today, in light of that day that we will stand before you. Give us courage, give us confidence, give us self-control, fill us with your spirit and help us, God, this week to receive your truth in a way that changes our lives. We need you to do this great work. 
And so we ask you for it with confidence and with hope. And we ask you for it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.